Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hey, I'm Scott Pipe. Hi, I'm Nick Percat. You are listening to Inside Supercars. All the racing I've done, supercars and, uh, you know, all the GT and drifting and all that kind of stuff, I think it all helps. A lot of seat time and having some good times racing, it's, it's a lot of fun. As long as we don't allow some of the lunatics to um, get the keys, then uh, it'll continue to be at the, um, at the forefront uh, through hard work and diligence, particularly on the part of the team owners and investment by them. From the racetracks across Australia and around the world, here's Inside Supercars. And welcome to Inside Supercars, another week of what fun motorsport uh, coming up ahead at Queensland Raceway. Craig. It is indeed, Tony, and, uh, well, who isn't looking forward to Queensland Raceway other than everyone who uh, hates Queensland Raceway, which seems to be a sizable number? It will be a great event this weekend because I'm not going to go. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. It, uh, it's at least an event you can see. Very little. But uh, an interesting one that uh, local knowledge can count because... One of the things about that track is that uh, the biggest hurdle you have to overcome is the bumps in turns one and three. Hmm, very interesting. Anyway, this week's agenda was a chock-a-block full of lots of interesting things. Um, outside of uh, this event this weekend, we've seen the, uh, well, the impending demise of uh, Matt Braid. He's resigned uh, as the managing director of Supercars, coming to the job uh, a couple of years ago, would have been 15 probably, from the role as MD of Volvo Australia. Of course, he's not going on into 2018. He's finishing up the year unless he's been stood down unbeknownst to me. No, no, I think he will be seeing out the year. Interesting uh, portfolio he had developed. I mean, he was uh, responsible for the uh, commercial side of the operation, um, whereas Warburton, I suppose, just goes and spends it. Um, But two of the other responsibilities were the uh, super utes, which, of course, is... uh, uh, sort of had to be postponed uh, for by year, um, and the Super 5000, which has also gone under a, a, a metamorphosis. It a week ago it was announced that it would be uh, blending the two 5000 categories at Chris Lambden's uh, Thunder 5000 and the supercars Oscar Fiorinotto, um owned by John McMillan and Bob. Pace, I can't think of his name, can't yep. his surname. You struggle on that one every week. Yes, I do, I know. <laughs> anyway, so this weekend we've got Queensland Raceway, um, which of course has just been announced that they've had a 10-year contract renewal, subject to, I think, from the supercar's point of view, the upgrades to happen at the track, which uh, we haven't really seen any detail of those, have we, Craig? No, well, we've had a lot of uh, speculation on what it will be with a hotel on site and a real uh, new precinct being upgraded to uh, a number of different um, categories being able to use the precinct more often and also the extension of the track. But uh, I don't know that the extension of the track is planned for in the next uh, five years, so uh, it, it will be interesting to see how it all plays out. Of course, they uh, got Damien White involved at the council to work on the project, and uh, I believe he's since moved on. So let's see how the council progresses. But 
great news. I know James Warburton said it's one of the most popular permanent circuits in the country. If, if, uh, that's, if that's the case, then how could you not go there again? And I'd also like to look at the winter numbers compared to the uh, Queensland Raceway numbers for that assessment. One of the things ironic about, uh, I remember vividly the opening meet there back in 99, the crowds were abysmal. Dennis O'Brien, um, who was responsible for building the circuit with money from people like Dick Johnson and others, um, <laughs> they did an amazing job because it, there were undulations where they would have put a track and they just flattened the whole thing and made it into a totally boring paper paperclip track. But anyway... So we're coming up to uh, another race, uh, another event of the year. It'll be the ninth event in the eighth round. Two races, Saturday and Sunday. One race, Saturday and Sunday, it is. Uh, 120 on Saturday, 200 on Sunday. Fascinating to look back in history and realise that uh, the man who took pole on the Saturday last year, Chris Pitty, is no longer in the series. He took the super black PRA FGX to pole. Uh, I can't remember where he finished in the race, but he didn't win it and didn't end up on the podium. But... Uh, it was a, a weekend that was dominated by Triple Eight because uh, Jamie took a pole and Shane and Craig both took a race win. So it was more of the same, and so it'll be interesting to see how the DJR Triple uh, Eight uh, battle ensues this year. Yeah, look, everyone's expecting it to be that, and, and unfortunately, not many teams have uh, have shown that they are going to take it to them. So it is a two-horse race, but maybe, just maybe, the problems that Tooley spoke about a few weeks ago have uh, been permanently resolved and and Pro Drive Racing Australia will be on the mend and, and back up figuring in the battles. As we know, of course, in the championship, while it's close, it's close at the top, only six points between Jamie and Scotty, um, it's 230 back to Shane in fourth, and in fact 500 back to um, Dave Reynolds in, in tenth. So there's a fair gap then, and largely because those others from probably uh, Shane down in fourth have all had DNFs, and that's the thing that uh, rapidly takes those others, those three at the top, in the, the two Penskys and Jamie, uh, clear of them in that, uh, you know, Fabian had the, the Cook uh, Townsville. He'd gone into the weekend leading the points and came out back in third place, 150 off. But um, interesting weekend. Uh, it should be a, uh, a a great battle. It always is very close there. Interestingly, uh, Alex Davison may be back in a car. He, of course, has been competing in Korea Cup, which ran last weekend up in Spang, apparently a great success for the Australian competitors running against Asia Cup, uh, rather, um, Career Cup Asia. Um, so Alex may be back in. He's done 150-odd rounds, driven for a number of teams, and certainly a very capable driver. So he might be recruited to help LVM just uh, post some uh, places and points closer to the uh, to the top 15 or top 10 even, taking uh, Aaron Russell's place. Um, this week we've got a, a treat for us in that one of our foreign-born and foreign-educated uh, and raised, but now adding very much to our category, and that's Alex Somerset from Walkinshaw Racing. Fascinating background. I first met him in A1GP some eight, ten years ago, and he brings something to the category that we didn't have before, just that different look. He actually had a very fascinating background when he first met Ludo back in uh, when he was working on the Nismo business. 
Um, he, of course, he came and joined uh, the Kelly operation working in this one for a while, but before he now is with Walkinshaw. So that's going to be this week's interview, and we're looking forward to talking with him. So coming up after the uh, break, we'll have Alex Somerset on board. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Facebook page, and to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Still a bit in shock. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks, everyone. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Got to put money back into the sport at the lower levels to develop the kids and bring them up. You can't rely upon good luck for Daniel Ricardo's old man to have found a few mates to tip some money in and send him overseas. There actually needs to be a structure. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Michael Caruso, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. And welcome to Inside Supercars. We're fortunate enough to have uh, joining us this week, Alex Somerset, uh, race engineer with Walkinshaw Racing. Been here in Australia, I don't know how long, how many years now? Um, this will be my sixth year. Sixth year, right. Um, Alex has an interesting background. I'd love to take go back to those early days of motorsport as to where and when you first became interested in Oh, I first became interested in motorsport when I was a kid. My granddad had a bit of a stock car team in the local moms with old V8 cars and um, we bombed about with him in his workshop and it, all speed was sort of ingrained in me. I grew up with my grandparents, so that's when it started. And, and I can remember being four years old thinking I want to be a racing driver. And that was Speedway yeah. in the UK? Oh, no, it was just um, stock cars in, uh, not Speedway, it was amateur level banger racing. Oh, okay. Just to, yeah. So that's where, we st- where it all started. So is that on a uh, road you... course or is that on an oval track? Oh, just a, a dirt oval, less than eighth of a mile. Uh-huh. And, and that's where you first started actually working on cars then? Yeah, pretty much. I, I was just helping him put his um, cars together, repairing it. He ran a car, a car business, and, you know, part of it was building, you know, these little track cars. They were okay. just old American cars, 50s and 60s, Chevs and Fords. So somewhere along the line there, you, you took what was your love and it became a job by going and doing mechanical engineering? Yeah. Um, I, st- I actually went to Winfield and actually gave driving a crack, and then I very soon realised that you know the my talent and my budget were about the same. They were they were small, right? And okay. normally with less talent, you need more money. And so I then decided I was going to go and do engineering. And that Winfield School was in France. Yes, yeah, yeah many schools. Yeah, yeah, very famous uh, place. Okay, um, so when you did your when did you qualify as a mechanical engineer? In '88. Right, '88. Okay, and your first job full time then? Uh, my first job full time was in 1988, uh, when I came out in around June, July time. Um, I went to work as a golfer for a Formula 3000 team. Right. And oh, okay. And we Wonderful. ran Gregor Foytek, who's pretty famous for destroying. Johnny Herbert's career, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. One whole series, that. Very competitive. Oh, yeah. It was, I worked with some really great people there, and it, it was pretty much junior F1, because you could do what you like with bodywork, with engines, chassis. It was all open formula. 
Right, okay. So, and so where, did you, where did you develop from there? Where did you go? So I, I just carried on being a golfer, then went on to being front-end. Um, I sort of had a little bit of a rock-and-roll lifestyle, so I didn't really um, didn't do the academia side. And then all of a sudden, you know, 1989, 1990 came along and aerodynamics were slowly coming to the fore, and um, I decided to go back to uni in 1993 and read aerodynamics. Oh. So then I did um, uh, did an honours degree in aerodynamics and aeronautics, and then I finished that degree in '96, and then went to work for Nismo in the UK. Ah, and so that's how you actually got to Kelly's. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's a it's a long winded story because when I worked for Nissan in the UK, um, TWR tried to get me over onto their side and um, offered me a job, and then. In those days, people could stop you from working for the competition and park you up. So, you know, I, I didn't actually make it. And then we went full circle in 2013 at the end because I was, still, I was then currently with Nissan, taken yeah. over by Tony Dow. And then when he was at Walking Shores, he said, do you want to come over? And, you know, I didn't look back. Right. Is Tony Dow still with Walking Shores now? Yep. Yeah, he's right. factory based, runs the production engineering uh, department. Right. Oh, right. I'll catch up with him later in the year. Okay, so uh, then you came out to Australia with Nissan. That's right. It was, the, it was the Kelly boys with the Holdens, and they wanted, um, they needed a new car drawn. They needed new engineers, and um, a whole heap of us came over from the UK. A couple of us are still here, and Richard Harris. Of, yeah, Richard Harris. That's right. Yep. yep. Okay. Um, and so you had then four years with uh, the Kellys? Oh, no, I only had two years with the Kellys. Two years? 2012 oh, okay. and 2013. Right. So I engineered Rick in 12 and then engineered Moffat in 2013. It was a pretty special year, actually, taking the first win for Nissan. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, amazing time to have seen. Uh, extraordinary program to have actually, you know, not only the cars but the engines and to to be doing all that with a car that wasn't designed as being a, a V8. And and being totally new to the rules as well. You know, you, you, your first um, attempt at anything is always com compromised by your ignorance of the, the nuances of the series and you always sort of think the next one is going to tick all the boxes rather than the big ones. You've obviously enjoyed the category, running in this category. I mean, you wouldn't still be here how many years down the road. I love Australia, and yes, the, it's the, by far the most competitive series I've ever been in. Right. You know, I've been used to winning championships where the grid is about three seconds, three and a half yeah. seconds. Yeah, yeah. You know, here you sneeze and you drop six rows. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... What did you know about it? A, pardon? What did you know about supercars before you came here, though? Um, I worked with Triple Eight in the UK. And they brought over the FG. Um, when they went from BF to FG, they brought a car over, and we helped them. The English engineering team helped them build the wind tunnel model. And so when they went testing with the wind tunnel, I went with Ludo with my British touring car. You know, a lot of the hardware from my touring car went to the FG um, body shell at the wind tunnel in France. So I got to know a little bit about it, but. The biggest learning curve was spool diffs. Mm -hmm. I'd never encountered a spool diff. <laughs> Not many people have. 
now, and that is huge because the diff is a really big tuning tool in every other category. Yes, it, it was fascinating actually to see with the uh, the new car, the uh, car of the future. Um, the first year that they were at Bathurst, and you obviously that was your second or third year in Australia. And one of the things I so strongly remember about that was that you know every driver complained about how jittery they were at the rear end. Oh, apart yeah. from one driver. And I can't think of his name now. <laughs> He's a Porsche uh, driver. Uh, Murrow Enkel? Jonathan Webb. Sorry? Murrow Enkel? Murrow? Yes. No, 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 not Murrow Enkel. No, he's a Porsche driver. I can't think of his name now. No, oh, I can't gosh. remember that. Part no, <laughs> but the fascinating thing was, you see, he was used to, he'd driven Porsches around Bathurst. All the other guys had, of course, been driving trucks around there with a solid rear yep. end. And so suddenly this guy who had been there with an independent rear end, and, and he'd got used to it. And that was one of the things that was so eye-opening for me, to, to the drivers talking about the nervousness of the cars compared to the old car. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, just quite extraordinary. But, you know, I mean, a lot of that's now dissipated because the cars, I think, are a hell of a lot more developed in the last couple of but years, they haven't they? Um, the thing is, they've learned how to deal with it. Yeah. They've learned to drive it. The scary yeah. cars are the fast ones. Yeah. You know, the guys in the fast cars are really working at it. You see their hand speed that they've developed, and that's what separates an A-list driver and a merely good driver, is those people that can keep the car dancing and, and you know, actually believe that it's going to stop. Sometimes yeah. they're not scared to take it over the, over the edge. That's where Shane really, really shines. And maybe even Scotty Mack. Yeah. It's interesting how um, uh, Shane Van Gisbergen shares a common trait with uh, the elder statesman of New Zealand, that Jim Richards, in the oh, both yeah. of them started racing on dirt. Okay. Unlike most of our drivers in Australia who started in go-karts, they didn't go on go-karts, they were on bitumen. They were okay. and, and learned on dirt how to control cars and how to feel cars. And that's why I believe that those two are the shining lights in the rain. And both of them have the same stance. People say to them, oh, you, you really like racing in the rain. No, but you're really good at it. Yeah, but that means I like it. <laughs> no, both absolutely. Are, both have the same attitude towards it, but they're both very good at it, I believe, yeah. because they didn't have that grounding in, in bitumen where you'd got a solid you grip and you know, could feel it around the corner. They were used to the thing just dancing and dancing and having to you know, keep on feeling it. That's right. It's just driving, driving on a low grip circuit helps. Yeah, yeah. Learning, learning your skills. And speaking of that, skills, you've obviously been challenged at the moment. The last uh, two years have not been strong for Walkinshaw. Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> but you know, the challenge is there. Obviously, it, it yeah, it was. We kind of saw a bit of a light um, from Eastern Creek onwards with Tander, and you know, I think. Um, Garth made a very proactive decision to change the way he drove yep. and, you know, what he needed to change within himself. And he did that very well and yeah. with a lot of poise. And he actually started making the car down. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, that confidence has gone in with him to Gary Rogers and I think he's just going to go from strength to strength. Yeah. yeah. Alec, do you see with a, a parody formula like this, there is much difference between the car that you 
engineered at Nissan to the car you're engineering at Walkinshaw and even back to when you saw what Ludo had brought to England when you were with Triple Eight. Is is it really down to driver skill more so than engineering? Um, very much so. The driver, I mean, my, uh, an old engineer many years told me the drivers are just there to make engineers look good. <laughs> you know, a driver wins, an engineer loses. <laughs> um, but I, I 100% believe it's a driver formula. But every component that goes into that package, engineer, mechanics, team manager, driver actually make the difference you know it's just making sure your driver's head's in the right place that he actually believes in you you believe in him it's the un the unsaid conversations that produce lap time so yeah it's a parity formula but it's nowhere near as parity as you know the other spec formulas like gp2 and um you know the other formulas out there that are you know customer cars if you like there is still enough freedoms there to get lost. But if the driver believes in what he's got, that makes the biggest difference. How do you... Uh, so much is said about getting out of the trailer and being within the window. How do you yep. do that in the workshop and how do you have then the confidence when the car comes out of the trailer that you are inside the window that you need to be in? So... In the normal, not, it's wrong to say normal situation, but ideally most of the work is done at the factory. So, you know, the, the laws of physics get obeyed no matter which state you are in and which bit of tarmac you're in. So you've got the weight of the car, you've got the wheelbase, the track, and the height of the center of gravity. All of those contribute to how fast your car is. And in effect, you should come in, bang on in the middle of the window. The window of late has just been getting smaller and smaller. And, you know, it is quite possible to be just out and then drift the wrong way. And sometimes the realization comes a little bit too late. But the bulk of the homework is done back at the factory, just processing past information, looking at what, you know, circuit characterization, the length of the corner, the radius of the corner, um, the speed in the corner, all of those things go together to decide your cambers, your spring package, and your damping. And it, you can't have any one big thing that will take you out of the window. It's usually a, you know, a combination of a lot of little things that on themselves don't seem too big that can actually knock you out pretty far. So it's about getting, it's being accurate 100% in everything. You know, getting the tire pressure right, getting the camber right. The driver feeling exactly what's right and driver driving a repeatable lap. You know, the driver is key that he can actually drive the car the same so you can actually fix a problem rather than chase what the driver is trying to do. And the last thing you want is a driver to compensate for a bad car. In a race, he can do that. But when you're practicing, the driver really needs to be repeatable. And that, again, is um, that sets uh, drivers apart. And after the break, we'll come back with some more insight into Alex Somerset's role in Walkinshaw Racing and the background he's led us through uh, part of. 
The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. And, you know, every, every year I see Jackie's tour at the Grand Prix and I just remind myself of his part in, in starting the, the path to safer cars. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Jack Robham certainly left his mark not only on Australian motorsport but motorsport all around the world. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au Hi, I'm Todd Kelly. Hi, I'm Fabian Coulthard and you're listening to Inside Supercars. When I was working in the in the States, and admittedly it's an oval compared to a road course, but one of the things that um, was always stressed to me that the best drivers could go out there and in a lap could give you more feedback than you could possibly use and they might just concentrate on one corner but they only do one lap at speed and then come back in and say in this corner it's this and then they'd move on to the next corner Uh, very much so like um with the 40 minute sessions you know you've got to hit the floor running and the tyres, because you're restricted on tyres, like everybody is, um, you know, you've got to really be able to discern when it's the driver that's improved and when it's the car that's improved. You know, you can't blow smoke up your own ass thinking you've made a good setup change and the driver's just actually driven the corner better. But it is, and I think um, that comes from the junior formulas. You know, if, the, if, um, if they've had a good education, then the driver can pick that up and, you know, they can give you the feedback, like you know, the stories of Scafi when he used to drive at HRT and the engineers like Starry talk about, you know, how he'd work the roll bars and actually come back after two or three laps and say, right, we I think we're too soft. We need to do this to the front. We need to do that to the rear. And then once we've done that, you can fine tune the rest. I think that's that's a little bit of a black art as well. I remember that so vividly. Um when I was uh, doing race facts back in the mid to late 90s. And I'd see Scaife in the garages longer than any other driver. Um, this is when debriefs you know, were only just evolving sort of thing. Yep. So I'd see Scaife there long after the other drivers had all left the track, pounding and pounding over the figures, uh, trying to arrive at it. You know, uh, it, was, it demonstrated to me that he had you know, a desire that went beyond what anyone else in the paddock did have. And that's, you know, why he won those championships, you know. Oh, 100%. 100. The top drivers, you know, like, they really put the effort in. Yeah. And they get to the point where even when it looks like they're not making the effort, they've actually digested everything but at a much faster rate than anybody else. And then there's some that can just plain drive. Yeah. yeah. Is there a case yeah. of we're getting to... Um, an information overload, and it's it's deaf by, you know, graphs and and uh, sec and micro sectors. Yep. Yeah. I would say you know sometimes you just got to take a step back because when you actually pour over stuff at that level, you know, you start looking in the minutiae of it, but you tend to disregard what happened in the sector before and the sector after, and you can mislead yourself. You can not get a true understanding of where your problem is. It's a useful tool, but 
software. I think if you lean on it too much and don't actually take it into context, you can get lost. You know, um, there are, you know, like the sectors are good when it's a corner. The micro sector like uh, Townso, um turn two was a micro sector in itself. And for, our, for example, our cars suffered there. So we knew we had a problem there. And, you know, we, we chipped away at it, but nowhere at the rate of knots that we needed to. In that instance, it was good. But when you go into Barbagello, when you go down into the bowl, and right in the middle of the bowl, one sector ends and another one starts, you can make one look really flash and the other one sacrifice the other. But if you do it, on, you know, do it in two halves, you can look really good in that corner. But in reality, you, know, you need to take both sectors together and take your average. So you can get lost. Has the now new... as we're preparing to go in the second half of the season and you've got the two or three meetings prior to stand down and the endurance has started, are you in the position where you're putting new parts on the car? Yeah, we are. We're constantly, um, you know, trying to um, evolve the race car, you know, and it's it's largely in relation to feedback. But one of the other tools that is um, quite helpful is the onboard vision. When you actually see the attitude of the other cars, mm-hmm. that you get an understanding on how they're trying unloading or loading the car. So you can see how they're unloading the rear wheels, yep. you know, how the attitude of the car is. And then that can only be done by physics. And so you try and understand why that car is quick. And then you just tune it up. You know, you might do a softer roll bar. You, you know, you might then decide your spring rates need to change. You might get another set of problems with it, and then you evolve. But, yeah, we do, we do try new things. You know, they might not involve a new part, but it could be a slight modification on philosophy. And change of attitude has been more about understanding why we were quick at certain circuits, not spend too much time wondering why we were slow at others, because... No matter what you come up with, you're never going to prove you're right or wrong. You're not going to go there for another 12 months. But if you can understand why you're fast at the Adelaide's, why you're fast at the Sandown's, Gold Coast and Bathurst, there's enough there to try and get you the information you need for the other circuit. Yes, I think there's an old Claude Ruel uh, line in there, isn't there? It's not enough to know why you, when you're fast, it's uh, why you're fast. Yeah, you definitely yeah. need to understand why you're fast. And yeah. um, I think the biggest issue that you can have in this category is is that, as I said, there's so many variables you can change. And, you know, teams take different approaches to get the same end result. I'm a firm believer that if you're constantly changing the car, the driver's never really getting to one with the car. Yeah. And, you know, like from... Townsville last year, apart from springs on car two, that's all we changed, springs and ride height to suit each circuit. And GT just got to learn the car, and, you know, he started finding the limits himself. You know, and things that he wouldn't have done in a 40-minute session, he was comfortable doing because, you know, he knew what he had underneath him. Yeah. So you've not been surprised by his progress so quickly uh, back at GRM? Oh, no, the RHGT. Admired him from when, you know, he was was probably a household name in India, in England, you know, despite, you know, there was Craig Lowndes, but that was because of our connection with him at AAA. Um, But GT was, you know, you need to see this lap. He was the king of the the blueprint V8 supercar. Yes. 
you know, he'd turn on a qualifying lap and he'd have you in awe. And yeah. Yeah, his lap at Tombush was one of those. Yeah. He'd found himself. Yes, he's uh, long been in the top five in terms of being a racer, certainly. Yeah. Um, challenges for the rest of the year, obviously, um, working your way up to 10. Um, have you set real objectives? Are there goals that you have? Yeah, the, what we'd like to see is constant improvement, whether that's just qualifying one position better for each cons- consecutive outing to finish each race. In the race scenario, you want to get the strategy right. You want the race craft to be correct. You want to get the set of parameters like tire pressures and all that correct. But in terms of, you know, for me, it's all about qualifying, you know, to be you know, everyone in the team wants to be the fastest car on track. And we just need to make sure that we're not going up and down because when you go up and down, it you don't get any momentum. Yeah. So, you know, we, you know, we'd like, with Scotty certainly like to make sure that he's in the 10 more regularly, that, you know, he puts in all his sectors together, yeah. you know, so when he comes in, you know, he's delivered the best that that car will be. Mm-hmm. If it's a P10 car, we want to finish P10 yeah. and just keep constant evolution and iterations to be faster. He seemed to develop uh, enormously when he was within the Penske organisation. Okay. He's changed quite dramatically over the last few years, in other words. Developed that thing, moved from being a young driver, trying to make his way to somebody, I suppose, because knowing he had multiple contracts made it easier for him. He wasn't always, you know, gee, what am I doing next year sort of thing. um, Yeah. So... For this year, like you know, both of you know, he's got a three-year deal. You know, I don't know how it how it formulates itself, but you know, as I said to him, this year is about making sure we tick off as many of the boxes as we can, so that when next year comes, we build on the momentum of this year, and there's no mistakes from any from all facets of the car two team, and you know, we we actually unlock the speed that's in the car. Do you have a, a, a theory about driver contracts? Like, I imagine that you don't get much of a say directly in it, but do you have a theory about you need a driver for four years to be able to, you know, turn the life of that uh, car and driver performance into its optimum? Or is it a case of, no, you can do it in six months if it's the right driver and the right car? If it's the right driver, it can happen instantly. I mean, people develop at different rates. Mm-hmm. So for me, like all my championships have been won with a driver in a second year of a working relationship. In the first year, you've cracked a few wins, you've had a few front row starts, a few pole positions. But it's that second year when you actually start gelling and you know it's the unwritten and the unsaid comments that affect changes to the car and the driving. I do believe being secure in the knowledge that you're going to have the same engineer for the second year, you're going to have build on momentum. Continuity is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that's why I rue supercars, because whenever you just get a driver going good, you change engineers. You know, So every year I've had a driver that's come on good in the second half of the year. Rick Kelly, um, Moffat, you then change in driver, on sometimes change package, and you start from ground zero again. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, it is All right. well, um, long-term relationships. <laughs> and and uh, are you married, Alex? Um, yep. Kids? Three. Um, Three? Right. 24, uh, 22, 26, and 29. Right. You hide your age well, young man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would not have thought your children would have been as old as that. How many are with you? Um, Ash is in Australia. Yep. He works for the team. He's my tire man. Right. Uh, one's married and the children in South Africa, and the other one's coming to live in Australia for a year in a few weeks' time. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So. Well, I wish you and Walkinshaw Racing uh, well. Um, it's obviously been some tumultuous times in the last few years for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's as tumultuous as and changes of management as much as changes of sponsorship arrangements. Uh, things that uh, unsettle race teams, really, uh, are those that, uh, as to where the instructions are coming from. But you, you feel that the team is settled now? Things will settle. You know, like we, we have a motto amongst us that we worry about the things we can control. Yep. The things we can control, you know, are a waste of time. You know, we don't get worried about the politics of what's going on. Politics always gets away in the way of performance. So, you know, we, as an engineering group, there's the three of us. We just are quite close. Um, you know, almost the intensity is quite high because our workloads are quite high. Yep. So, you know, um, yeah. So it's it's pretty serious, and but our focus is 100%. You know, we don't like being where we are. Yeah. You know, and you know, we take joint responsibility with all the other facets of the organisation for where we find ourselves. Yeah. Um, by the way, will you pass on my regards to Macca? I uh, have known yeah, we'll him for uh, 20 years plus. He's uh, okay, we'll do, yeah. still in charge of the workshop. Yes, very much so. He's team manager, so his role slightly evolved, so he's, his seniority has increased, and uh, yeah. yeah, so he's doing all right. Uh, reveling in his new challenges. Well, best of luck from Inside Supercars, Alex. We appreciate your time. And, no problem. And uh, wish you luck in the coming months ahead and rounds uh, to, to, uh, to come. And look forward to catching up. For sure. You have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. And Inside Supercars now, just having heard to Alex, we can reflect on how hard Walkinshaw Racing are challenging the series. And we back up there again towards the end of this uh, year, making their presence felt. Craig, it's been a wonderful interview to learn the background of Alex. Yeah, fascinating. And uh, there was a whole lot more there we didn't even uh, scratch the surface on um, in his backstory either, uh, bobbing up, working with Ludo. And uh, we didn't get to the part of the story where he uh, had left uh, Nissan or between uh, the Formula 3000 days and getting to Triple Eight. I'm sure that Alex will be pleased to come back and we will attempt to do that in the near future. Well, I guess after the break, we'll be back with our final thoughts. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. This year in Formula 3, I think it's a fantastic environment for me to be doing that. However, I believe for myself, uh, a sustainable career in tin tops such as Fiat Supercars in Australia is where I see myself. Second crack at the Australian time since we've been back and a bit unlucky the first time that we end up with a win there at Speedway City uh, two weeks ago. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community 
Sydney Radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Craig Lance. Hi, I'm Dale Wood, and you're listening to Supercars Today. And welcome back to Inside Supercars. Alex has a wonderful history, and I'm looking forward to uh, catching up and talking in person with him and hearing more on the latest updates that are happening at Walton Shores. Craig, final thoughts for me this week is that it's great to see this weekend at Queensland Raceway a track that uh, needs close racing to keep the crowd enthused because there's not much else around there. <laughs> but it's great to see Formula 4, Ute, the Kumo Series, um, Touring Car Masters, see them all back there again. It's terrific to see them because you need to have those close categories so that it doesn't resort to just track walks to keep the crowd entertained. Great racing at that track can be great if they're good close categories, and I think it will be this weekend. Mm. So your final thought this week, Craig? Well, on the back of your final thought too, it's it's two good weekends of cams ar- racing because the track is normally a double ASA racetrack, and uh, the following weekend, under lights, is the Shannon's Nationals round. So uh, it is good to see that uh, the track being used in that uh, in that effect, and uh, two great weekends of racing with the supercars and the Shannon's Nationals. But my final thought is, everyone talks about how easy it is. Everyone talks about how boring it is. If it's so easy and so boring, how come Craig Lowndes sits on 12 wins, Garth Tander, the next best, is on five, and there's been 11 single-race winners? If it's so easy, wouldn't uh, there be a lot more people a lot closer to Craig Lowndes. <laughs> I suppose it's interesting that two of the more senior drivers in the paddock, uh, that being Craig and Garth, are leading the way there. Mm. And the other interesting thing about it is remembering some of those single race winners were when it was a dual uh, driver race. So, you know, if it's so easy, then why is Lowndes just so dominant there? How come, uh, surely... If it's always so close, then it would be a much bigger mix. You wouldn't have a such a dominant driver with more than half of the next best in race wins. Well, it all kicks off on this Friday at Queensland Raceway. As I said, round eight of the uh, series. And we'll look forward to next week dissecting it a little bit, finding out as to what and who and why it all happened. So thanks again for joining us on Inside Supercars. Join us again next week. Craig Lavelle and Tony Whitlock, thank you. Good night. Good night. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars.